Today's scripture comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were both naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome once again here to New Creation Fellowship. Especially want to give you a special welcome to those of you who are visiting us, maybe for the first time at the invitation of a friend, coworker, sibling. We're so delighted to have you today, especially, especially if you are investigating the Christian faith, if you are someone who is seeking to know more about the truth and you are considering the claims of Jesus We are so honored to have you as our guest, and we hope and pray that our time together will not only be educational, but maybe even to the point of maybe persuading you to embrace Jesus for who he claims to be, namely the God of heaven and earth, your creator, to whom he is calling you to have a personal relationship with. Now, with all that said, would you now bow your heads with me one more time as we ask for the Lord's blessing in today's message. Father, we ask now that as we have finished these past six days and now seek to enter this time of rest with you, that you would indeed give ease to our weary souls. Father, whatever anxieties, whatever uh, discouragements, whatever thoughts that may be weighing our hearts down, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would banish them away so that at this time, you would speak words of comfort, words of life, words of truth, so that we may be refreshed, so that we may be equipped and enabled to go out into the world with such conviction to be a source of blessing in the world, unsettled by anything that this world has to throw at us, but instead fully convicted and settled in our hope in you. Father, we pray now that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You know, ever since I graduated college, I've had a recurring nightmare that to this day, I still get every now and then, especially in season of stress. And I've been stressed lately. And so I've been getting this nightmare. And here's the dream. I'm back in college, freshman year. And I walk into a lecture hall very similar to this. And I sit down getting ready to hear about a 90-minute lecture from my professor when to my horror, I come to discover that it's the day of the final. An exam that I did not study and therefore am not ready to take. And as I start frantically looking around to my classmates to see if anyone else is freaking out, everyone is very calm, serene, just checking off the exam, right? And as I try to look down to decipher what I'm being examined on, and it's always, by the way, a math final. I did pretty good in math, but for some reason, it's always a math final, and it's complete gibberish, right? And as soon as I try to concentrate and focus, the more scattered brain I become, and just at a point where I feel like I'm just going to pass out out of frustration, I wake up with beads of sweat coming down my forehead, breathing loudly, and then when I start to come out of it, and I realize that it was just a dream, I go back, lie down, close my eyes, and I quickly fall back asleep. Why? 
Well, because it's been almost 20 years since I've been in university, which means my days of taking any sort of final are long gone. Those days are long gone. Praise Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you. But sadly and unfortunately for many people today, those days are not gone, which means they are currently living this nightmare day in and day out. Now, please don't misunderstand. I am not talking about actual exams from a college final, but I am talking about questions. And the consequences is by not being able to answer these kinds of questions, the consequences are so dire that it's much more detrimental than simply flunking out of a semester of school. Okay. You're asking yourself, what kind of questions are you referring to, Pastor John? I'm talking about the big picture questions of life, the profound existential questions that every human being should be asking ourselves and should be trying to answer. Questions like, where do I come from? What is the purpose of life? What is the destiny of mankind? These are the questions, whether we realize it or not, are questions that we must be able to pose upon ourselves and be able to answer Because those are the questions that make us most unhappy when we never answer them adequately. And because that is the case, so many people today are trying to answer these questions of life. But what I see so often, and to my sadness, is that many people today attempt to answer these questions the way that student who didn't study for the final tends to answer their exams. By peering over to their classmates and simply copying down the answers that they see everyone else answering those questions with. So many people today, instead of critically thinking for themselves what the answers could be to these important questions of life, simply parrot what they hear other people are saying is the answer to these questions, whether it's from their favorite celebrity saying these things, whether it's what the media says, what it's what popular culture or PC culture is saying the answers are to these questions. And one particular question that I think is very prevalent right now that falls into this category of big picture question is the question of identity. Who am I? Who am I? Who am I to identify self as? How am I supposed to identify myself as? Okay. We're finishing today our summer sermon series entitled Shoebox. And the whole purpose of this series was to allow you, the members of this church, to submit any questions pertaining to life and Christianity and how the Bible would address certain topics, whether they be doctrines or life applications to the Christian life that either you found unsettling, that you did not understand, or you didn't agree with. And sure enough, somebody actually submitted a question to address this issue of identity that is so pervasive in our culture today. You know, you turn on the news, you read the news online, you go on Facebook and you find story after story, headline after headline that is always addressing this issue of identity today, specifically things like gender identity, sexual identity, transgender identity, transsexual identity. And so one of you guys gave me the annoying question, hey, Pastor John, can you address this in the pulpit today? And I was like, oh, great. You want me to address this hot topic issue, right? Well, I said, okay, why not? And so we are going to take a look at that issue of identity and how our culture understands it and how we as followers of Jesus should approach that issue as well. And to do so, we're going to take a look at a very well-known passage for those of us who grew up going to church, Genesis chapter 3. And it is my hope that this familiar passage can give us fresh insight and fresh application to tackle this very complicated cultural topic today, which is the issue of identity. And so with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you as it pertains to identity. Number one, let's talk about first the crisis of identity. 
the crisis of identity. Number two, let's talk about the cause of this crisis of identity. And finally, we're going to end it with the solution to the crisis of identity. The crisis of identity, the cause for it, and then the solution for it. Okay, let's jump right in. First, the crisis of uh, identity. Now, our passage, which was just read to us, recounts part of the story of Adam and Eve. And this is a story that many people know, even those outside the church. And sure enough, for those of you who grew up in the church, no doubt this passage has been a text that you've heard many sermons on and you've done many Bible studies in, right? Which is probably why you're wondering why I am using this text to talk about the issue of identity. Because after all, as you read through these verses, you don't come across that word identity whatsoever. But here's a general good rule of thumb when it comes to studying the Bible. Just because a word is not there doesn't mean the idea of that word isn't there. Just because the word is not there doesn't mean the idea behind the word isn't there. Let me show what I mean by first asking a question. What exactly do we mean when we say the word identity? What do we mean when we say identity? Now, at first, that may seem like kind of a ridiculous question to ask because it seems so obvious duh we know what identity is pastor john but do we do you do you really know what it means when we talk about identity why do i say this because if you look up the standard definition of this word identity you come across some very interesting definition in fact let me read to you two definitions that's provided for us from Merriam webster this is what it says in terms of identity first definition the state of being exactly alike, kind of like identical twins or the law of identity. If you're familiar with philosophy, right? Identity can also be described as this idea as something that is very alike with one another, accurately like identical with each other. Okay. But then consider this second definition of identity, which is the set of qualities that make a person different from other people. The set of qualities that make a person different from another person. Now, that is interesting because the dictionary gives us two almost contradicting definitions of this same word. On one hand, identity is where you have something that is identical, something that is accurately alike to something else. But then on the other hand, identity is the unique characteristics that allows you to distinguish something from something else, something that allows you to differentiate something from something else or someone from something else. How do these seemingly contradicting definitions, excuse me, contradicting definitions help us understand this topic that we're trying to address when it comes to identity? Well, if we go back to the philosophical question that's normally attached to this word, who am I? I think we can figure it out. You see, whenever people ask the question, who am I? What they're really trying to figure out is how should I perceive myself? How should I view myself in a way that is identical to what I really am or accurate to what I really am that will allow me to differentiate myself from other people? In other words, whenever someone claims a certain identity for themselves, they are claiming that they see themselves in a way, they perceive themselves in certain ways that is accurate to what they really are that allows them to distinguish themselves from other people. So putting all this together, I came up with this definition of identity. Identity is the perception a person has of themselves that is identical or accurate to what they really are that allows them to differentiate themselves from other people. Okay? That's the working definition. Now, with that in mind, consider our passage Genesis 2. 
Do you see any behaviors that hints that this concept of identity is being embodied in the characters of Adam and Eve in our story? You bet you do. Verse 7, read it again. At that moment, their eyes were open and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Here you see both Adam and Eve perceiving themselves, specifically looking at their nakedness. And sure enough, by looking at their nakedness, initially, they're able to differentiate themselves from each other. Adam is a male, Eve is a female, right? They're able to see what distinguishes themselves from one another. And hence, they are able to have some sense of identity of who they are. But then we see something missing, though, in this verse that I just read. In light of that definition of identity I just read, what is missing? This sense of accuracy, right? Because what do they do when they see their nakedness? What do they do when they see the thing that distinguishes them from the other person? What do they do? They hide it, right? And now they no longer see the very thing that distinguishes one from the other person. And what does that tell us? At this moment in the story, Adam and Eve are having a crisis of identity. They're having an identity crisis. Now, what do we mean by that? What is a crisis of identity? Well, if you go back to that definition that I just had, if you could put it back up, right, as being the accurate perception a person has of themselves that allows them to distinguish themselves from other people, then an identity crisis is when a person can no longer perceive themselves accurately and hence they can't differentiate themselves from anybody else, right? And now they feel like they don't know who they are. It's kind of comparable to when a GPS can no longer accurately perceive its location, Right? That's how people are when they feel like they no longer have a sense of identity. They don't know who they are. They feel lost. But in this instance, they're not lost in terms of where they are. They feel lost in terms of who they are. In other words, a person who is suffering an identity crisis is someone who can't see themselves correctly. It's all blurry inside. And because of that, they don't know where they end and someone else begins, right? They can't differentiate, right? where they end and someone else begins. Here's the question. What happens when a person is in that kind of state of mind? Do you know what happens? They don't know where they fit in. In a communal setting, they have no idea where they fit in. It's kind of comparable to that nameless new kid who comes to the school and it's lunchtime. And as he has his tray of food, he stands right at the threshold of the cafeteria, not knowing where to sit, whose table to sit at, because he doesn't know who he is in light of this new social setting. He doesn't know where he should sit. And typically what happens to that kind of kid? They sit at a table with no one else but them doing the most social thing a human being can do, eating all by themselves, right? By the way, that's how you can tell if you ever are going through an identity crisis. You feel like you don't belong. You feel like you don't know where you fit in. Even if you're in a community setting that is so loving, so kind, so welcoming, nevertheless, because of this sense of you not knowing who you are, this sense of feeling like you're your own stranger, you're estranged from yourself, you will never feel, because of that, you can connect with other people. It's kind of like when a grandchild excuse me, not a grand, a grandparent, right, is disconnected to their grandchild because they're estranged from their own child, the parent of that child, right? Because a grandparent has an estranged relationship with their own child, they cannot connect 
with the one that connects to that child, the grandchild. You see, when you are disconnected to yourself, when you feel like you are estranged from yourself, that disconnect does not allow you to connect with others. When you feel like you don't know who you are, you feel like you can't know anyone else, you see. And as a result, no matter what kind of community you're in, no matter how affectionate, how welcoming, how accepting, you're always going to feel isolated. You're always going to feel quarantined. You're always going to feel like you're in the closet. But here's the thing that this passage is trying to teach us. This is not how God intended us to live. He did not create us to feel like not knowing who we are as if we were that nameless person. And the reason why is because, as we'll see in a moment, the reason why people struggle from an identity crisis is because of a major moral failure that led to that identity crisis. And to further explain what I mean, let me go to my next point, the cause of the crisis of identity. As I mentioned in my first point, verse 7 ends with Adam and Eve suffering this identity crisis. And so to figure out the cause of this identity crisis that these two are facing, we have to go back to the beginning of our passage in verse 1, where it reads as follows. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Bible, this serpent is no ordinary snake. As we come to find out later on in the Bible, we come to find that this snake is actually Satan in serpentile form, right? And as Satan approaches Eve, he asks her a question, right? A question. Now, you've heard the phrase, you know, it doesn't hurt to ask, right? Or, or there's no harm in asking. We say those things because we want to encourage curiosity we want to encourage people to constantly ask questions but those statements could not apply to the question that satan is asking eve you want to know why because underlying this question is an evil sinister question that basically goes like this is god trustworthy is god trustworthy you know questions are the mental vehicles that we use to get to more knowledge. It is by asking questions that we go on a journey and knowing no more about the reality that we live in. And because that is true, it is often assumed that asking questions is always a good thing. To get more knowledge is always a good endeavor, right? And hence we say it doesn't hurt to ask. There's no harm in asking as if to imply that when we stop asking questions, we're hurting ourselves, we're harming ourselves, right? Well, not necessarily, you know, one of the most interesting things, if you keep up on philosophical ideas and read books on philosophy that are recently coming out, like I tend to do, I'm a, into philosophy, if you guys hadn't noticed, one of the interesting things that people are saying in the area of epistemology, which is the idea of how you know what you know, is that more philosophers today are conveying this idea that sometimes it's not always good to know things. It's not always good to try and know everything that there is possibly out there to know. Consider how one philosopher by the name of Nicholas Riescher, he teaches at University of Pittsburgh, he says this in one of his books, quote, some information is simply not safe for us, not because there is something wrong with its possession in the abstract, but because it is the sort of things that we humans are not well suited to cope with. There are various things we simply ought not to know. If we did not have to live our lives amidst the fog of uncertainty about a whole range of matters that are actually of fundamental interest and importance to us, it would no longer be a human mode of existence that we live. Instead, we would become a being of another sort, perhaps in 
angelic, perhaps machine-like, but certainly not human. What is he saying? He's saying there are some things out there that we should not try to know. In other words, he's saying that there are certain things out there that we shouldn't make an endeavor to figure out at all costs because it assumes a certain level of existence that does not correspond to what you are. In other words, if you try to attain a certain level of knowledge that is beyond your capacity, you are trying to make a claim for yourself in terms of what you are to where you're no longer human, you see? See, one of the things that he's trying to convey and what most philosophers are starting to say now is that there's a certain level of existence that corresponds to a certain level of knowledge, okay? God's level of existence is way higher than our level of existence, right? Which means his level of knowledge is way beyond our capability, right? It goes way beyond our level of knowledge, which means there's no way we could get to that level because then we would be claiming we're no longer human, but we are divine right and yet that's the very thing that satan is claiming to eve in his temptation towards her when he asks the question can you really trust god he is assuming that eve and anyone else for that matter is capable of reaching the level of knowledge that god has thereby giving you the ability to criticize to judge and to evaluate god on whether or not he's trustworthy or not, you see? All of this is confirmed when we consider the outlandish promise Satan makes to Eve in verse 5. Listen again to what he says. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Right? See that last statement? You will be like God, knowing both good and evil. What does that mean? Do you know what that means? It means, according to Satan, that Eve is capable of having a level of knowledge to where she is able to figure out completely on her own what is right, what is good, what is true. In other words, Satan is promising Eve that if she disobey God, she will be able to have a sense of independence from God to where she can know what is right for her, what's good for her, and what's true for her, and what's true of her, okay? He is making that kind of claim upon her life, that she can be the sole determiner of what is right for her, what is good for her, and what is true for her. Here's what I find so interesting. If you ever listen to how people who advocate for things like determining your own gender or your own sexual identity, they speak in exactly the same way. A couple of weeks back, I was listening to a podcast of Joe Rogan. Anyone know who Joe Rogan is? He's a typical commentator for the MMA fights, and he has a very popular radio podcast. And one week, he was interviewing a philosopher by the name of Thaddeus Russell. Anyone heard of Thaddeus Russell? A very popular philosopher on YouTube these days. He once taught at Columbia here. And at one portion of the interview, he starts talking about why he loves postmodern philosophy, why postmodern philosophy is such an amazing thing that has happened in our culture today. Take a listen to his quote as he explains why this is the case. He writes this quote, or he said this quote, postmodernism comes out of French philosophy from the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Michel Foucault is the most famous example of a French postmodernist. But the central argument made by Foucault and postmodernists is that none of these things, gender, are biologically determined, that there is no natural essence to anything, that everything is a social construct, which means that we are now free to choose our own destiny as individuals. Prior to the 1960s and 70s, it was the dominant belief that if you were born a woman, you were going to be a wife or mother, and if you weren't, then you were going to be something unnatural. 
Everybody's destiny was determined by birth. So postmodern says, guess what? You know what we found in history? All these categories have changed over time, which means they're just inventions, and they have served the purpose of ruling elites because they get to put people in boxes and control them. So the trans movement, for instance, that started from postmodernism. That whole idea that says if you were born as a male, that meant you were a man and you must do X, Y, and Z with your life. The trans movement needed postmodernism to make the intervention to say, no, that is not true. You can be a woman because woman is an invention. It's a social construct. It's been a liberating movement. It has become the dominant way of thinking in academia, and it is, in my view, the supreme achievement in academics ever. What's he saying? He's saying, thank God, well, he doesn't believe in God, thank the stars of this recent philosophical movement known as postmodernism because now it's liberated us from these backward social constructs of maleness and femaleness, and now if you are a biological male, but you feel like you're a woman inside, that's okay. You are a woman because you get to decide your own identity. In essence, he says, every individual gets to decide, I am who I say I am. I am who, de- who decides what I am, basically. Right? That's the essence of postmodern philosophy that says, I am who I say I am. I am who I decide I am. Hold that thought for just a moment as I read this passage of Scripture which recounts a dialogue between Moses and God in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, where it reads this. But Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am have sent you. Interesting. God says that his name is I am that I am which essentially sounds virtually identical to how most postmoderns today think about themselves that justify them to give them the right to say, I am this, I am that, right? In other words, God is saying part of what makes me God, part of what makes me unique and holy is that I am capable of saying, I am whatever I say I am. I am whatever I decide I am. I am that authoritative. I am that powerful i am that free and what this tells us is that when a person is making a claim of identity that basically says i get to decide no matter what anyone else says i get to decide that i am what i am even if it's not corresponding to my current biology i am what i am right If I want to say that I'm a woman, even though I was born a man, if I want to say I'm a six-year-old child, even though biologically I'm a 50-year-old man who comes from Ontario, Canada, right? I am what I am. Now, what does this tell us, Christian? It tells us that when a person is making a claim of identity like that, they're actually making a much bigger claim than what they're saying with their mouth. When a man says, I am a woman, he's not simply saying, I am a woman. What he's also saying, he's saying, I am God. I get to decide my own identity. I get to determine what I am, which is kind of ironic if you think about it, right? Because typically when people say things like that, it's a liberating moment for them, right? They would say things like, you know, for years, I felt like a woman trapped in a man's body. Now I finally can embrace this. I am what I am. And now this crisis of identity is resolved. And yet if what I am saying is true, Their crisis is far from over. In fact, they have a much bigger crisis on their hands 
when the underlying assumption behind that idea is you think you are your own God, right? This is the fundamental presupposition that drives many people today when it comes to figuring out the question, who am I? Now, I know for some of you, as you hear all this, you don't really appreciate what I'm saying. In fact, maybe I would go so far as to say you find what I'm saying somewhat offensive, right? Because for me to kind of tacitly accuse people that they have a God complex in these claims they're making about themselves, and when you consider that these very people tend to be the ones who get bullied, you know, get to be um, treated mis- uh, terribly by society, right? I mean, that just sounds messed up, right? For me to be standing up here criticizing, you know, the trans movement or a person who identify themselves as trans, as someone who simply just has a God complex, and you couple that with the statistical fact that 45% of trans people throughout their life will attempt suicide, right? Close to 45% of those in the trans community at one point have attempted suicide or actually succeeded in it, you know? It just makes me look like I'm perpetuating this discriminatory religious hatred that so much in our society is against. And I totally get that. I totally understand how that can be perceived. But would you give me an opportunity to kind of try to explain myself in a way that I hope will not allow you or anyone else to paint me in that picture? So let me attempt to do that now by going to my final point, the solution to the crisis of identity. If you do a Google search and type in the question, the causes of suicide amongst those in the trans community, you'll be pretty shocked to discover that there isn't one real reason, one main reason why people in that context attempt suicide, right? I, just last year, the Indian Journal of School of Psychiatry or Psychology Medicine, the Inter- Indian Journal Psychology of Medicine, the Indian Journal of Psychology of Medicine did an extensive study right, as to the causes of attempted suicide and even successful suicide amongst the trans community. And this is what it said, interestingly, quote, the psychological autopsy of the completed suicides among transgender person has revealed that the factors such as a breakup of love relationships initiated by the partner, serious altercations with family members, refusal of gender sex reassignment by the family members, financial problems, and being diagnosed with HIV positive in the past few days slash weeks have triggered the act of suicide among the victims. Clearly, the cause of suicide in this context is very, very complicated, and I think it's a little disingenuous to ever buy into the media idea that it's because of religious discriminatory hatred as being a factor or even a main factor as to why that is happening. Clearly, that is not the case. But with that said, I do want to make this caveat. As a genuine follower of Jesus, you are never permitted to ever be cruel, to ever be bullying, to be condemning or judgmental, right? With your words, with your fists, with your media accounts to those who don't share the biblical worldview that maybe you possess. One transsexual person once said in an interview to to a pastor of all people said, if Jesus was alive, he would eat with people like me. And you know what? She is absolutely right. You know how I know this? Because the gospel is filled with countless of incidents of Jesus inviting people, befriending people, having meals with those who do not share his biblical sexual ethics, right? 
And what that tells us is it is possible for Christians, for us, to stay faithful to the convictions of biblical sexual ethics, but at the same time have a compassion, kind, friendly posture, and a welcoming posture to those who do not share those convictions. And when we understand that, then we can begin to see the solution to how we can help people or even help ourselves whenever we are faced with a crisis of identity. And to help parse that out, I want to read to you a quote. It's a very long quote. I apologize, but it's a very good quote from Pastor Tim Keller. A couple uh, years ago, he did an amazing lecture on identity. Go on YouTube. Take a look. It's really good. But I want to read to you just a portion of what he said because it helps set the stage of how we can deal with this crisis of identity. He says this quote, it's an illusion. The idea that says, don't care what other people say, you decide what is right or wrong for you. If you are happy with yourself, then you can be happy with yourself. Don't worry about what other people say. You look inside and figure out the truth for yourself. That is an illusion. Let me give you an example to show you this. 1,200 years ago, an Anglo-Saxon warrior is walking around Britain, and he looks in his heart, and he sees two very strong impulses. One of them is he likes killing people. When people get in his way, he likes to smash them. But then he looks in his heart and he sees something else. He sees a sexual desire that doesn't fit with what the rest of his culture says is okay. So here's what he's going to do. He's going to look at his aggression and he's going to say, that's me. It's a shame and honor culture and warrior culture. It fits in with what the culture says is good. But he's going to look at that sexual desire and says, that's not me. Scroll forward 1,200 years later, young man walking down the street in Manhattan, and he looks into his heart and he sees two very strong impulses. One is aggression. He likes smashing people. What's he going to do with that? He's going to go to therapy. He's going to go to anger management classes, or he's going to go to jail. But the other thing he sees, a particular sexual desires, and he says, that's me. But that violent side is not me. Why? Because your culture says one desire is okay, but the other isn't. Both the warrior and the modern person have received a grid, a value-laden moral grid that have laid down that determines what desires, emotions, and impulses fit into society. That's me and those that do not, that's not me. This tells us that contrary to what people today claim about themselves, namely, I'm just being true to myself, are in fact just doing what the ancient warrior did 1,200 years ago. You're doing what your culture tells you. You are not more liberated today than the Anglo-Saxon warrior was 1,200 years ago. You know why? Because you can't bless yourself. You can't validate yourself. Whenever I see people on social media say, my parents said this, my church said this, but this isn't who I am. This is who I am. I determine who I should be. You're not actually bestowing blessing and validation for yourself. You know what you're doing? You're going and getting another group of cheerleaders, a different group. Because on social media, they're going to say, yay, heroic, you're willing, you're courageous. In other words, I'm just getting another bunch of people telling me how to live. You can't bless yourself. Listen, here is how identity comes. I need and you need somebody that you respect and adore, respecting and affirming you. Then and only then will I get a stable identity and a positive self-regard. I need someone who I respect to come and say, I affirm you, I accept you, I got to have that and so do you. And if you say, well, I'm giving that to myself, don't be ridiculous. You are just getting a new set of cheerleaders. Very insightful, right? What is he saying? He's saying in spite of what people claim, that they're able to figure out who they are, that they can say, I am who I say I am, according to Keller, it's all an illusion because the fact of the matter is we all need someone outside of us, someone that we regard highly, someone that we love, someone that we respect to validate and affirm this identity. That's the only way we can do that. And in fact, we see that in our passage as well. We see this happening in Adam and Eve. Look at what it says in the second half of verse two. So she took some of the fruit 
and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. Question, why does Eve feel the need that Adam also needs to eat from the same fruit that she just bit out of? Why? She wants affirmation. She wants him to support what she just did by doing it himself, right? She wants him to say, I love you. You're my husband. You're bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I revere you. I respect you. Now validate what I just did. Validate what I say about myself that I can determine who I am, right? Validate that by you doing the same thing that you're saying that as individuals, we get to decide who we are, not anyone else, not even God. And so he does, he bites. And through that bite, he basically says, I affirm what you did. I agree with you. You get to decide who you are. I get to decide who I am. We get to decide on our own who we are, right? And almost making a tacit promise. And I will make sure that this right that you have just taken for yourself is protected at all costs. I will make sure that no one takes that away from you, right? But then look at what happens as soon as God confronts them. Starting in verse 11, this is God speaking. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me. She's the one who gave me the fruit and I ate it. Is he going out of his way to protect this woman? Even though he's kind of tacitly saying, I'm going to protect your right to do this. I'm going to affirm this, that you did the right thing. No, he throws her under the bus. What's the point? Point is, in spite of what you may think that you can determine your own identity, in spite of what our culture says that you can determine, you can't. You always need someone outside of you to affirm this, to give you this sense of stability in determining who you really are. And as we just read, it has to be by someone who loves us more than the other human being who loves us more than anyone else, our own spouse. Do you know who fits that bill? Who could possibly love us more than the one person who should be loving us the most? It's God, right? God is the only one who can really validate and affirm and even dispense an identity that we cannot acquire on our own. We need the validation of God himself, right? And if you think about it, it makes total sense because think about it for just a moment. If part of claiming an identity involves knowing for yourself what is right for you, what is good for you, what is true for you, and what is true of you, that assumes that you know everything about everything. How can you say with any certainty, I know what is right for me. I know what's good for me. I know, you know, what's true for me. And I know what's true of me. The only way you can say that with any certainty is if you know everything. Because how do you know that at one point, you know, you're going to be this way. And then later on, you won't change your mind because you discovered something new. I mean, haven't we all figured out at one point in our lives, maybe we thought a certain person was our soulmate. And we knew there's no one else. And then you look back and you're like, what in the world was I thinking? I thought I knew for sure. The only way you can know for any certainty that something is right for you, good for you and true of you is if you know everything, right? I mean, isn't that why people go traveling on extensive you know, explorations and they say things like, I'm trying to find myself. I got to experience what's out there. I got to know more things so I can figure out who I am. What is that? That's language of identity, right? But here's the thing, folks. No human being can do that. 
No human being has enough time on earth, money in their bank accounts to experience and know everything there is possibly know to where you can come back at it and say, I know for certain what is good for me, what is bad for me, what is right for me, what is wrong for me, what is true of me, what's not true of me. The only person who could ever give you that knowledge of yourself is the one who does know everything, the one who made you. That's God. Only God can give you a stable identity that is accurate. In spite of what you may think of yourself, in spite of what you may feel about yourself, God says, what I say of you carries more authority, more weight than even what you say of yourself. So here's the question. What does God say about us? You know what he says? You are a wretched, (laughs) broken, perverted, selfish sinner. And you don't deserve my attention. You don't deserve my acknowledgement. You don't deserve to be welcomed to my table in the metaphor cafeteria of life. You don't deserve anything from me, let alone my love, my acceptance, my relationship. And yet, God goes on to say, I give it to you. I love you. I affirm you. And I welcome you to my home, to my family, to my table. That's the gospel, right? That's what the gospel teaches us that God came into this world as Jesus Christ so that he could suffer the full penalty of all of our sins that's really encapsulated with our attempts of being our own God, of trying to be our own I am who I am by dying on the cross, paying the full penalty of all that rebellion so that you could be affirmed with an identity that is crisis proof, an identity that can never be taken away in spite of what you feel. You are a beloved child of God. You are God's beloved. Here's my question, NCF. Have you affirmed that? Do you believe that? What is governing who you say you are? Is it your feelings? Is it what other people are saying? You're just copying it down as the answer for yourself? Or are you really considering what God says about you and what you know really resonates inside of you? Here's my challenge to you. We live in a very confused time where many people are asking, who am I? And they're trying to answer that question for themselves, not knowing they still depend on others. Maybe someone like you to come into their life to either validate or maybe invalidate it. But my question is, are you ready to do that? Or are you just simply going to make the same mistake of Adam by proverbially biting the same apple that they bit and just says, yes, I agree. I affirm only to find out later on that you're going to throw them under the bus once you face the consequences of that kind of error. What are we going to be for this world? How are we going to be a blessing when it comes to this specific issue? The solution to the crisis of identity is by affirming the identity that God has given to you in Christ Jesus. But Christian, are you holding on to that? Are you affirming that at all costs? At this point, I want to end my message with a couple of next steps, some practical ways in which we can really apply today's message. Number one, if you're here today and you're not a believer in Christ, but yet you feel like you might become one right now, you're starting to become one, maybe today's message or maybe accumulation of other messages that you've heard have now culminated at this point to where you feel you're ready to accept Christ as Lord and Savior. Take this time right now, go to the Lord, pray, ask for forgiveness of sins, Make him the Lord of your life, and please come talk to me or Pastor James. We would love to help you move forward in next steps of cultivating this walk with God. Number two, 
Christians, take some time this week to seriously and honestly ask yourself the question, what other identity am I centering my life on? Is it my work identity, my sexual identity, my family identity? Um, Is it this identity of being a friend, of being a professional? What is your identity now that is not consistent with the identity God has given you, right? Based on how you spend your time and money, the things you worry over or the things you dream about, what do all of these reveal in terms of the identity that you are living out, an identity that you are trying to impose on yourself? Finally, take some time this week in your Oikos groups. Pray for people you know who are struggling with their identity whether it be their sexual identity, whether it be their family identity, whether it be their Christian identity, can you come alongside friends and fellow believers and remind them of the hope that they have in Jesus? That no matter how much they feel they don't know themselves sometimes, when they look to Jesus, they know their identity is settled and that it cannot be taken away. Let's take some time now and pray. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that as we deal with this very complicated and very high-minded issue, God, help us to really think clearly, help us to think through the implications, and help us to not be deceived so easily based on what our culture, what the media, what, what society tells us. Instead, help us to always cling to what the Word of God says. Father, we are surrounded by friends and family who are struggling in this area of life. And maybe they don't even see it as a struggle, but something to embrace. Lord, help us to have wisdom and help us to have deep Christ-like love for them so that we can be a loving witness to them, to your love for them. Help us to figure out how to navigate through the complex discussions and interactions that we have so that we would not be in any way a propagator of hate or judgmentalism or cruelty, but instead a place of love and affection and utter acceptance in Jesus. Father, we pray that you will give us these things so that we can truly be salt and light as you have called us to be. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.